0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com. Dot com slash sacred text today to get ten percent off your first month. That's better help, help, dot com slash sacred text.
1: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by me undies. deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of me undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL guaranteeing a flattering cut for every body. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh-so-comfy, making it ideal for all-day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash H-P-S-T. That's MeUndies.com slash H-P-S-T for 20% off plus free shipping. Me Undies, comfort from the outside in.
0: Chapter 7: The Ministry of Magic. Harry awoke at half past five the next morning as abruptly and completely as if someone had yelled in his ear. For a few moments he lay immobile as the prospect of the hearing filled every tiny particle of his brain. Then, unable to bear it, he leapt out of bed and put on his glasses. I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
2: And I'm Kaspatech Kyle.
0: And this is Harry Potter in the Sacred Text.
2: We're so looking forward to our live show in Denver tomorrow. So everyone in Colorado, come say hi.
0: And we have been able to put up a new event in Austin. We are going to be doing a pre-show Lectio, only open to 15 people. So if you go to com, you can join us at our live shows tomorrow in Denver, then in Chicago and Austin and Cambridge, Massachusetts, and definitely check out our pre-show Lectios, both in Chicago and in Austin.
2: So much joy with the Lectio. That didn't quite rhyme.
0: It didn't even remotely rhyme.
2: (laughs) The other thing to say is that for those of you who are in Florida and excited about us coming to Orlando, we're doing a live show on Saturday, the 16th of February. So come out to Orlando. You can buy your tickets online as well. HarryPotterSecretText.com. Vanessa, today's episode, we're reading through the theme of progress. 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 And I was really struck with a memory that suddenly hit me as I was thinking about it. Some of you may know that my husband, Sean, is American and was trained as a classical musician. He was an opera singer by trade, which is very exciting. But the thing that was really interesting to me is that my uncle, who's also gay and also called Turkile and is Dutch, his partner of nearly 35 years is also American and trained as an opera singer. What? Isn't that wild?
0: That is bonkers. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. And so I was so excited for us all to meet and sit down together. And so when Sean and I went to Europe in the first year that we were together, I wanted to make sure we sat down with my uncles, Alex and Jim. And we took the train out to East Holland. And it was just still a miracle to me that we had so many similarities. And I was thinking about, gosh, oh, they must have the same experiences we do. And and we arrived and Alex picked us up from the train station and we kind of sat down at their house. And I snuggled up to Sean on the sofa and kind of throughout the day started to realize that we were just much more physically close with each other. I like to hold Sean's hand. He played with my hair. And I, and I looked at my uncles and I realized that they really didn't, especially when we were out in public. And what I thought would have been this real moment of sameness ended up being actually really different across generations. And it struck me that the way we are together physically and emotionally is so shaped by the experience we had coming out in our adulthood. You know, I've been out at work since the moment I was out in my life when I was kind of 16, 17. My uncle, who worked in a very international context and had to fly around the world for his job, never came out at work because it would have jeopardized his relationships with partners around the world. And so has made me think about progress in this really personal way because what happens in our culture and in our society and in our laws gets so embodied in our own relationships with each other. And it left me a little bit sad, but mostly really grateful that my uncle's generation had done so much to make me feel so much more comfortable expressing my love in this really everyday way with my now husband in ways that maybe they never could have.
0: Casper, that's such a beautiful story and a sad story. And something that really spoke to me was at the very end, your gratitude to your uncles. I just think that that is something that only marginalized communities think to be grateful for the right to hold hands. I'm going to make a political statement here. We should live in a world in which anybody can hold anybody's hand.
2: Yeah, that's so true.
0: And it is only marginalized communities that have to feel grateful for these things that everybody else just sees as an entitlement.
2: Vanessa, we just roamed around in a story across generational time, but let's take it from the macro to the micro to a 30-second recap time. Three, two, one, go.
0: So Harry goes downstairs and everybody is there and sort of discussing the trial and they go to the Ministry of Magic and it reminds me that there there used to be phone booths and they arrive at the Ministry of Magic and you get to sort of see the way that everything works and there are all these different departments and departmental memos and they don't use owls anymore and um, they go to Mr. Weasley's office and they're hanging out and um, Kingsley Shacklebolt is like mmm meatballs so then they are in Mr. Weasley's office and it turns out that the trial has been moved and they have to rush to get to the trial and they're running and then Mr. Weasley's like I don't. Go Go in there with you.
2: It's like deal with that. <laughs> yeah. Young child.
0: Sucka. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it when people move things too earlier. How is that even allowed? It's not allowed, and people do it anyway. <sighs> Best of luck to you, Turkile. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, on your mark, get set, Go.
2: So um, they arrive. uh, Well, first first of all, they have to leave the house. And Harry makes a major mistake by refusing a fully cooked English breakfast and just asking for some toast with marmalade. Basic, basic stuff. Principles, Harry. Always say yes to breakfast. Then they get on the underground and they go to this place. And then mm, telephone box goes down. Then big atrium and and voice like AI voice goes, hello, visitor. And they have to sign in and he's recognized. But no. Then they go up to um, Mr. Weasley's office. And then (gasps) Perkins arrives and like, run, 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 down, 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 down arrive at thing and now hearing starts
0: my god you are so good at this
2: i think of it really as an embodied experience that i want our listeners to go with me on but yeah this is an exciting chapter because you think you know what's happening and then (gasps) no you don't
0: you also get to like go to the ministry of magic
2: which is a huge hugely important place in this book
0: yeah and it feels like a field trip
2: Vanessa, I want to start with this chapter in something that Mr. Weasley and Harry both walk past. Once they're in the atrium of the ministry, we hear this description of a fountain, and we're told, A group of statues, larger than life-size, stood in the middle of a circular pool. Tallest of them all was a noble-looking wizard, with his wand pointing straight up in the air. Grouped around him were a beautiful witch, a centaur, a goblin, and a house-elf. The last three were all looking adoringly up at the witch and wizard." And what struck me about this is that even reading the story now, knowing what's going to happen, that this statue is going to be replaced with an even more kind of supremacist witch and wizard statue, so much of that is already embodied in this statue, even though this is supposed to seem as like some sort of unifying, happy thing. Yeah, I'm just wondering what you made of encountering this statue for the first time.
0: Well, it hadn't occurred to me to think about encountering it. So thank you. (laughs) But I think that you're exactly right. I think that somebody installed this thinking very proudly. What a progressive statue. Look, we've included house elves and centaurs and goblins in this statue of who it is that the Ministry of Magic represents. Congratulations to me, pat, pat, pat myself on the back, right? (laughs) And it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately because over the last couple of months and years, it's been really exciting to see the way that casting has changed in pop culture. So it was 10 summers ago now that Mamma Mia beat out James Bond as the number one grossing film in America for the summer. And yet still we're having conversations about whether or not female-led movies can really make enough money in the box office in order to be supported But over the last couple of years, we've really seen, right, Get Out was a huge success, and now Crazy Rich Asians was a huge success. And so we are seeing more and more that quote-unquote minority-led films can be just as successful as films led by white, straight-seeming cisgender men. Whereas for so many years, I think that Hollywood sort of would pat itself on the back, being like, look at how diverse our cast is. We have an Asian best friend. We have, you know, a woman's sidekick. There's a black guy in the background, (laughs) right? And now we finally are seeing like, no, Black Panther can be an amazing movie filled with almost entirely black cast and can become like a world-dominating hit. Like the world wants to see these characters. I feel like the wizarding world with this statue and this fountain in this moment is like, look, we have a goblin in our fountain. Aren't we doing great? Right. And they're not thinking about the fact like, well, you have a goblin in a completely supporting role and a subservient role looking up at the witch and wizard. So it can sometimes feel like you are being progressive and maybe like there's some progress involved in having, you know, the black best friend and not just like the black mammy figure in Gone with the Wind. But that doesn't mean that things are where they should be. It's not good enough. Progress is not always
2: good enough. Right. And we've already heard in the pages of this book that the goblins might switch sides and support Voldemort if they get more rights. So we know that this picture is totally an idealized fiction of what's actually going going on in terms of kind of multi-racial species relations in the wizarding world. Well,
0: what you don't see under the water is that one of the goblins is actually kicking the wizard.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the thing that really struck me, I was at a wedding recently in Virginia, and we went to visit Monticello, the Thomas Jefferson's house of his retirement that he built. And I knew very little, kind of as a foreigner, I know very little about Thomas Jefferson. But as the lead author of the Declaration of Independence, his words really embody this beautiful ideal of, of equality. You know, that all men are created equal, but that at the same time as he was writing these visionary words, he owned during his lifetime 400 people who were enslaved, not seeing that layer of total incongruity between freedom and holding people in slavery. And it it forced me to think like, where in my life do I think that we've reached like the end of that progress narrative in some way? when actually there's still so much more to go. And and it really made me think about environmental questions especially, like that we think of natural resources as resources rather than part of who we are as a living ecosystem, right? That we think of certain places as expendable as like trash dumps or even frankly countries that we kind of just dismiss because they're out of sight and out of mind. I love the way that you said that progress might be progress, but it does not mean that it's good enough.
0: I guess the moments that I'm curious about in my own life are what are the compromises that I'm making that I shouldn't actually be comfortable with? What stories do I tell myself of like, well, we're not there yet, but it's better than it was. So, okay, right? And I think a lot of times I do that with exactly pieces of art like this, with statues. One of the most overwhelming experiences I've had with a work of public art, it was in Rome, that Fountain of the Four Rivers, which is, I mean, just this beautiful Bernini- sculpture in Rome. And I'm telling you, I saw it and I was so moved by it. It's this like great marble piece of art that kids are climbing over and people are eating gelato on, right? It's just like this gorgeous thing that feels very like of the people and for the people and approachable. And then of course, you know, the Nile is portrayed in a completely racist way. And Looking at it for the first time a few years ago, I was like, well, that's too bad, but then just sort of forgave it. I was like, well, it was made a long time ago, and that's not how we would make it now. And like... I don't know if it was like super anti-Semitic. I wouldn't feel that way.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's also such a challenge just with the physicality of it because they've become so ingrained in our physical space in the way that this statue has as well. Like Harry walks past and says, oh, if I get released, I will put 10 galleons in this fountain. Like it becomes a place of meaning because our lives are lived in and around this space place this sculpture
0: i like went on a date and ate gelato right. on that
2: or like this reminds me of my hometown like this statue has always been here you know so it becomes a much bigger deal to take it away even if that's the right thing to do
0: there's plumbing involved <laughs> <laughs> like you're gonna pull out pipes just because i'm a little offended don't worry about it
2: i feel like if they can make a sinking telephone box they should be able to handle some water supply they,
0: yeah i know you're kidding but like exactly right if I were Hermione and walked in, if I were a witch and walked in, I'd be like, I don't like that the witch is only beautiful, and I don't feel comfortable with how subservient all of those other magical creatures look, but whatever. But if I were a house elf and I came in, I'd be like, well, no wonder there aren't laws supporting me. This is how you think of me. And so it's the more marginalized we are, the higher stakes those fountains not only feel but materially are. If somebody who's a legislator is walking by that fountain every day and sees a house elf happy with his lot in life and just so happy to serve his master, then he's not going to be thinking about writing laws to dismantle that. These things materially do matter. And I think in the name of it being progressive enough for right now or being too big of a pain to tear down, I am someone in all of my privilege who doesn't get offended enough by these
2: things. Mm. Vanessa, where else did you see this theme of progress in the text?
0: So a moment that really struck me was that this is the first time that Harry gets to see horrors at work. Mm. And I just remember a moment where I felt like I personally progressed as a kid. I sort of announced to my family when I was 11 years old, I was going to be a writer and saw myself as somebody who cared a lot about reading and writing, but I didn't know anybody. I certainly didn't know any women who were writers. And then my mom's cousin married a woman who, who was a writer and worked with other writers. And it meant so much to me and opened up my whole world that there was a Jewish, like, Orthodox woman who worked with writers and was a writer. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
1: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by MeUndies. deserves a super soft super comfortable pair of me undies lounge pants there are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun expressive prints and they come in sizes extra small to 4 xl guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody and like i said already they have unmatched comfort their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater it's also breathable stretchy and oh so comfy making it ideal for all day wear MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. Me undies, comfort from the outside in.
0: And it was the first time I was able to visualize a future for myself in a real way. And so I was just imagining how much it would mean to Harry to walk in and be like, or is it work and like see it and be like, this is where they go. And then also how devastating it is that there are pictures of Sirius up all over that office and how like immediately destabilizing and invalidating of his like career hopes that is.
2: Yeah, it's so important to have an encounter with what's possible. You know, I think throughout this book, Harry's kind of picking up things about the auras, right? He's meeting Tonks, he's meeting other auras who, who have their own grades of seniority, right? He's learning about that process of what you might need to get there. And he's seeing the reality of what the wizarding world looks like in the office. I remember doing work experience at my local newspaper when I was 15 and I was having to learn like what do you wear when you when you go to work you know just just things that I'd seen other people do but kind of having that Coming into an office space, seeing how people sit behind desks and print things and all of that.
0: Yeah. And it's so funny that you say print things. I remember I worked part-time when I was 15 or so in a, in a law firm, and I asked somebody to show me how the copier worked. And she said, no, no. Figuring out how the copier works on your own is a key part of a work experience. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. But it's true, right? I actually do think she taught me a really important lesson of, like— you don't want to be asking everybody for help. There's some things you just have to struggle through and like figure out when you're new at a job.
2: Like defeating an evil Lord Voldemort <laughs> before you can become a Marauder.
0: <laughs> right. I know. I wonder if Harry gets to skip some classes and or training. But anyway, yes. I just think it's so important for Harry's progress just like as A wizard right a couple of years ago he was in such acute distress that the only thing that was important for him to be able to visualize was that he was going to be able to get out of the Dursleys right and now this new world like he's sort of like personally progressing he's on this journey where he's able to visualize more than escape he's able to dream of something not just escaping from something and I think this is just like such an important although complicated moment where he's like that that is where I want To go to. That is not just something I want to go away from. This is now what I know I want to go toward. Casper, I just want to call our attention to a technological progression that happens here, Mm. which is that we see all of these flying paper planes with memos on them, with departmental memos on them. And Harry asks Mr. Weasley about them. And Mr. Weasley says, oh, we used to have owls, but you wouldn't imagine the droppings. And it just feels like this is a transition that we are going through a lot right now, right? Where analog ways of communicating are being digitized. And it's probably really a good thing for, like, sanitary reasons that we got all of those owls out of there. I just also think whenever there is, like, technological progress, there's also loss. It must have been nice to have all of those owls around. Those owls might have been, like, feeding their family on whatever it was that they were doing the ministry.
2: I'm just worried when the, like, long-distance owls are going to be replaced by long-distance paper airplanes. But I, on a more serious note, I do think that these flying memos are really not a full solution. I mean a they're not exactly secure like if you <laughs> if you just want to read someone else's like paper airplane you just go like acio paper airplane message you know and you don't
0: yeah, know they could have security
2: one recognition software
0: Yeah you have no idea
2: <laughs> But I do wonder if here's another example of like email has not quite been embraced or at least texting has not quite been embraced in the wizarding world for for questions that are beyond our understanding
0: I mean it is interesting because we do see at the ministry that they have embraced massive technology right like there's a you step to the right if you're operating and to the left if you're disoperating and like they do have all of these like mass systems it's also weird that the paper airplanes need to take the lift
2: Yes. Is there some sort of paper airplane system?
0: Yeah, it's very confusing.
2: You know, maybe what it is, is that they actually tried email and then were like, this is not healthy. Screen time is not good. The HR department is actually very progressive and we don't recognize it. (laughs) Vanessa, we've talked a lot about progress, our theme in this chapter, but do you see any kind of anti-progress happening here, like regression in some way?
0: Yes. At the very end of the chapter, there is absolute regression, which is Harry gets this news, Harry and Mr. Weasley get the news that Harry's trial has been moved up earlier, Mm. uh, but has also been moved. And it's been moved to a room and Mr. Weasley says, but we haven't used those courtrooms in years. Mm. And I feel like there's such an ominous tone to that of like, we haven't used those since Voldemort was here last time, right? It feels like some old law that we've all agreed is like inhumane has been entered back into society.
2: It makes me think of the Patriot Act you know, where liberties that had been enshrined, human rights that had been enshrined in law was suddenly kind of shredded or at least paused in a time of national crisis after 9-11. And it's taken years. And frankly, not all of them have been brought back in. Guantanamo Bay still exists because it's kind of embedded now into the economy and into the military industrial complex, if you will.
0: Right. It just seems like a warning of like, Be careful when you are willing to, like, take steps back because you don't know when you're going to be able to take those steps forward again.
2: Yeah. Progress is not inevitable. I think that's something that's really frightening. And we're all in it right now. Like, it's not one-way traffic through history. Can I just make one final observation? This I love. So when they get into the descending telephone box entrance to the ministry, Mr. Weasley Types in a number on the telephone, and the number is 62442. Now, if you go to your phone and type those letters into the number keypad, it's going to spell out M-A-G-I-C. The number is magic.
0: Nothing in our three and a half years together has made me happier than that revelation. (laughs) (laughs) It's an incredible revelation. You are a genius and a star. So, Casper, we are now going to do your favorite spiritual practice, Lectio Divina, in which I am going to put my thumb somewhere in the text and we are going to pick a sentence and we are going to take it through our rigorous four-step reading process. And the place I put my thumb is, (laughs) it's really short. This way, said Mr. Weasley. Oh. So, step one of Lectio Divina is what is literally happening in this sentence.
2: Um, I'm having to figure out where it is. Is is it towards the end when they're running to find the courtrooms?
0: No, actually, it's at sort of the beginning. They've just seen this big fountain, and we've just gotten the description of it. And Mr. Weasley is like, this is the way to my office.
2: Okay, perfect. I'm with you. So it's right after they've had the kind of security search, and Harry's had his wand, you know, tested to make sure all is well. And the guard at the end suddenly realized it was Harry. So Harry's just had this moment of like, I want to keep my head down, but I've been recognized. We're we're going to Mr. Weasley's office to wait for a while.
0: Perfect. (laughs) You are an A student. So step two of Lectio is allegory. So what does this sentence remind you of allegorically? This way, said Mr. Weasley.
2: I mean, I'm thinking of of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, you know, that kind of narrative structure where there's these tropes that you see again and again in great myths and, and stories And one of the most important roles is the entrance of the mentor or the guide who helps our hero in some way across thresholds. And Mr. Weasley's done that so beautifully in this chapter already, right? Taking Harry from Twelve Grimald Place through a journey into this new ministry of magic. And so literally what Mr. Weasley is saying right now is this way, like he's guiding Harry. And I'm, I'm thinking about how in the Campbell architecture of a story... At some point, the hero has to go beyond what the guide can offer. I'm now thinking that that's exactly what happens at the end of this chapter, right? Mr. Weasley doesn't go into the courtroom with Harry. And so I'm just suddenly seeing this whole chapter within that framework of Arthur as a guide. And he's proven his trustworthiness, you know, throughout the books. And and so Harry is uh, is allowing himself to be guided into this new world by Mr. Weasley.
0: Mind blown.
2: What about you, Vanessa? What are there any allegorical things that strike you, stories or, or otherwise?
0: I was reminded of like Alice in Wonderland, where like signs point this way, but it's actually the wrong way, <laughs> right? Just like the chaos of somebody who thinks they know where they're taking you, because it turns out that Mister Weasley is wrong. He is operating under the wrong information so he's saying this way but it's actually the wrong way it also reminds me one of my favorite things in the world and i know it's sort of dopey but i love really specific signs like i love it when a house will be like the Turkile house 3412 kilometers from the netherlands i'm like cool and like an arrow pointing like netherlands that way like amazing
2: that's super cute
0: i love a specific sign. So, yeah, that is what it reminds me of. So I love that our minds sort of created Mr. Weasley as this, like, fantastic guide and yet also as this, like, very limited and flawed guide. And Mm -hmm. I think both are true. Yeah. Step three of Lectio Divina is when we ask ourselves, what does this sentence remind us of in our own lives? The sentence, once again, is, this way, said Mr. Weasley.
2: I'm really embarrassed about this and this is totally shaped by my being a man, I have such confidence in directions and at least 60% of the time I'm wrong. Sean and I will be traveling together and I've just had to learn that like, I cannot trust what I think is true when it comes to directions. I'm like, it's definitely this way. And it's like, really not. <laughs> and and Sean is much more quiet in those situations, but he's also much more right. And so I'm I'm thinking about we know that Mr. Weasley doesn't have the updated information because he's, they're trying to trick him. But at the same time, has Mr. Weasley maybe lived a life where he's so confident in his own you know, sense of direction? If he had called ahead to make sure, there are some things that are embedded in his confidence that also lead to Harry's downfall here. And I think, frankly, lead to my own downfall. Like, because I'll say, no, it's definitely this way. And we'll spend five minutes walking in that direction before I realize, or maybe double check. And actually, it's the other way. (laughs) How about you, Vanessa?
0: I think what it's speaking to me in my life is how much I crave sometimes somebody being like, this way.
3: Hmm.
0: More in a metaphorical way, there are times in my life that I wish somebody would be like, it's this way. I think that right now the lesson that I am learning again and again in my life is that nobody has the right answer mm. and we're all just making it up. And so looking for someone to say this way is a fool's errand. And that really what you should be doing is sort of like crowdsourcing with like trusted people to come up with your best possible guess and that you might be wrong. But I think that often I'm sort of looking around being like, who knows the way? and the answer is no one. And we probably wouldn't be in the like, bad situation we're in as a society if someone did know.
2: This is so interesting, because I feel the tension like we talked about before that, you know, Mr. Weasley is the perfect guide and also deeply flawed because you're so right. Like no one knows the answer. And we are all making it up as we go along. And the more I realize that the more forgiving I am of myself and not knowing it and making it up as I go along. But on, on the other hand, there are also people who've done things before and really have things to teach us. And I think about, you know, especially the value within spiritual traditions of having a teacher who introduces you to a practice or will sit down with you and do something together so that you develop the confidence and the skills. It's just such an interesting duality of knowing and not knowing and of guiding and not guiding that Both are true at the same time, and they're completely contradictory. Help. How does that work?
3: (laughs) Well,
0: great question, because now we get to do step four of Lectio Divina and try to answer that question. So the sentence is, this way, said Mr. Weasley. And the prompt of Lectio is, what action do we feel called to? And I can go first because I feel Mm. like you really helped me figure out, which is, I apologize so much when I ask for help. Hmm. And I think I need to just ask for help. I recently asked a friend of the podcast, Matt Potts, to write a letter of recommendation for me for something. And I apologize so many times. It was actually like annoying him and making it harder <laughs> for him to write. And it, it's okay to ask for help because we need each other, mm, right? Absolutely. What about you? What do you feel called to?
2: I think the thing that this is really ma- making me think about when I feel like I really don't know anything... I probably know more than I do. And when I feel really confident about something, I probably know less than I think I do. And yeah, I guess this is an invitation to just hold knowing and not knowing lightly and to not let it paralyze us. Um, The wisdom of Harry Potter is great, my peoples. (laughs) Hot take. Hot
3: take.
0: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
2: Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. It's time for our voicemail, and we're going to hear from Aya Ahmed, who is reading book one, and it's a lovely throwback to the beginning of the series.
3: Uh, Hi, Casper and Vanessa. This is Aya, all the way from Cairo, Egypt. Uh, I was just listening to your episode about vulnerability and about Harry and his experience with the sorting hat. And it really related to what you guys were saying and what, what Vanessa was saying about making the choice about who you are and who the kind, the kind of person you want to be and how Harry was. He kept on chanting, not Slytherin, not Slytherin, not Slytherin. And it just reminded me of my experience because I sort of had this experience of going to a new place and having people have these expectations of me. When I was 11 years old, we moved from America, where i had lived for almost half of my childhood, and we moved back to Egypt. And in America, I never felt like I was completely American because I'm not. I'm just this Egyptian girl who was thrown into America. And I had to deal with this new culture that I'm not used to, uh, these people I'm not used to. And by the time I got the hang of it and sort of became an American, I was thrusted back to Egypt without warning. And when I came back here, people had these expectations of me that I did not really know how to live up to. Everybody expected me to be this American girl. They expected me to behave a certain way and act a certain way. And I was rejected by everyone around me, basically, because I wasn't American enough for, for, like, I came to Egypt, I wasn't Egyptian enough or American enough. Like, when I was in America, I wasn't Egyptian enough or American enough. And that vulnerability really made me understand Harry and where he's coming from. And luckily, in my first few months here, my my Arabic was poor, very poor. I didn't know how to communicate with people. My dad wanted to encourage me to read. And this is when he got me my first Harry Potter book. But he got it for me in Arabic. And I remember I struggled through the pages. But at the same time, I found myself relating to Harry, relating to the new world he's in. When I read Harry Potter, I felt less alone. I felt, if Harry can do it, if he could be so vulnerable, if he could be such an outsider with all these expectations put on him, but yet he's just going to rebel a little bit, but at the same time, just hold on to to who he is. He's going to be okay. And I was friendless for my first two years in Egypt because no one understood me. And in that time, Harry and Ron and Hermione were my only friends. And sort of, they gave me the power to every day just wake up and face the world. And that's why I'm so attached to these books.
0: Hey, yeah, thank you so much for that beautiful voicemail. And I think that you were speaking to something that is universally felt, that there are times in our lives where the only people who can keep us company are fictional. And that sort of brings us back into the world eventually, right, because we realize that the people around us have felt the same way. Obviously, you felt it in a really acute linguistic way. But I think that what you're speaking about is so universal.
2: Mm, Thanks, A.M. Vanessa, who would you like to bless from this chapter?
0: I would like to bless Nymphadora Tonks, who only likes to be called Tonks. Tonks does a great job at the beginning of this chapter of demonstrating one of my favorite things, as our listeners know, which is making boundaries. She says, I am exhausted. I've stayed up the last two nights, and I'm going to tell Dumbledore that I can't stay up again tonight because I am just too tired. And I don't think that it should have to get to that place where you are exhausted and have been up for like 72 hours before you set a limit but i just would like to offer a blessing to our dear tonks for saying like i can't do this anymore and even if the fate of the world is on my shoulders my shoulders can't handle it and so a blessing to anyone who needs more boundaries in their lives set one set an arbitrary tiny one just to do it i love a boundary (laughs) (laughs) who would you like to bless this week casper
2: We've not talked about this character at all, and we really only meet him very briefly, but it's Perkins. He's the man as Harry and Mr. Weasley are kind of like settling into his like little office cupboard situation, which I'm sure Harry is stressing about reminiscing life under the stairs. Suddenly Perkins, Mr. Weasley's office mate, comes running in and said, I tried to reach you. They've moved the hearing. It's happening like right now. You're already five minutes late. And I just love that Perkins is so clear about the information he needs to share and and has done everything he could to try and share the important message. Because I think so often we can see things that need to be done and just be like, oh, it's not my job, you know, because it's really not Perkins' job. But he does it because he cares. And so for anyone who's picking up extra stuff because they care, I'm just so grateful for you and for Perkins. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you to everyone who's done that. You can send us a voicemail or come to one of our live shows or weekend away experience in Florida this February. Next week, we'll read Chapter 8, The Hearing, through the theme of partnership with our very dear friend and special guest, Lauren Taylor. This episode is produced by Ariana Nedelman, by Vanessa Zolton, and me, Casper Terkhal. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll. Thanks to Aya Ahmed for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Amanda Madigan, Bridget Goggin, and of course Stephanie Pulsell. We'll see you all next week. There's something at the end of the chapter which is interesting. No, you should say Just it, right? say it. Yeah. No, no, uh, that's so your point. You don't
0: say is interesting as if you're last. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else has been boring. <laughs>